Brain Stories UK here again for Season 6, Episode 13. Calling this one the Old Curiosity Shop Murder, Arundel, West Sussex. Well, this is a short podcast story, hoping to get it done in around half an hour. It's another murder set in the West Sussex village of Arundel. Arundel's a small market town, population under 5,000 but this is at least the fifth murder case I've covered featuring the town. It doesn't seem all that dangerous whenever I've been there, rather genteel. The town is on the road between Brighton and Chichester in the beautiful South Downs. Well, this short tale will have long been forgotten, as it happened 80 years ago when the country was at war. It was reported in the press at the time, known as the Curiosity Shop Tragedy. War is a good time, usually, to commit a murder if you're able to show some guile and determination to get away with it. These were not the qualities shown by Andrew Brown. The story is quite straightforward and the police were quite efficient. Andrew Brown was was born at Killalee, a county down Northern Ireland, on the 24th of March 1918. He lived at Shaw Street with his family. His father was employed on the coal boats at Kennelly and there were six children in the family. Brown attended school until he was aged 14, after which he had various labouring work. Brown moved to England during August 1939, three weeks before the country entered World War II. He worked for various firms contracted on government work until he joined the RAF on the 24th of April 1941 as an A01, which meant he was assigned general duties. He was posted to the maintenance signals unit at RAF Tangmere, Sussex. It was thought that Brown was disappointed at being given labouring work, as he wanted to be a lorry driver for the RAF. According to the RAF records, his conduct was considered good, although he appeared rather dull mentally. Brown said he was the only Irishman in his unit, and he was known as Paddy. Paddy Brown. The village of Tangmere in Sussex had been taken over by the RAF and was not to resume its status as a civilian community until 1966. There was a public house called the Bader Arms at Tangmere, named after the famous Winko at Tangmere during World War II. Douglas reached for the Sky Bader, but it has now become a co-op local shop. The commanding officer and the other airmen of his unit thought Brown was a man who kept very much to himself and sought his own recreation. It is known that he visited a female acquaintance known as Kitty or Winifred living at the camp nearby almost every day. Amelia Knowles was a spinster born on the 14th of March 1876 on the Isle of Wight. She lived in a small four-roomed cottage at 20 Tarrant Street, Arundel, where she had resided for some 30 years or more. She sold bric-a-brac in front of her tiny cottage at Tennant Street, Arundel. The house had been called locally the Old Curiosity Shop. Amelia's father, who worked in a brewery, died in 1936, and Amelia, the only surviving member of the family, lived there alone since that time. For some years, Amelia had been behaving abnormally, and from inquiries made of the local residents, This had taken the form of shouting, abusing imaginary people in her home and elsewhere, banging articles, rattling tins and things like that, normally during the night time. 
Amelia lived almost exclusively in the front room of the house, the door of which opened onto the street directly. Amelia was said to be generally lucid during the daylight hours, but would not let anybody inside the house apart from the coalman. The house was in a filthy condition, and the other rooms were filled with furniture and items crammed into boxes. Complaints had been made against her for throwing her own sanitary matter into the street instead of using the accommodation indoors. She was also refusing to pay her rates and was in arrears for two years. The reason she gave was that her neighbours were annoying her and nothing had been done to prevent this. It seemed that Amelia had began to lose hold on reality. Monday the 18th of September 1944, a policeman, Reserve Constable Dobbs, attended Amelia's house after concerns from neighbours after shouting the night before and that her milk being untouched on the doorstep by midday. The front door was unlocked and as he entered and removed the blackout curtains, Dobbs found Amelia's body on the floor. An oil lamp was still burning on a small table. Amelia's legs were apart and her lower body was exposed. Dobbs asked a local resident to stand guard outside the front door while he went for assistance. Detectives and the police surgeon returned and found no obvious signs of a struggle, although it proved later that Amelia had been raped and her jaw had been broken and there were other injuries. She had been dead about 12 hours and during this time the palm of her right hand had been bitten by rats. A small white bag made of material similar to that used for bandages was found near the body and this contained 63 10 shilling notes. Another was found sewn into the vest as a small pocket with 37 10 shilling notes hidden inside. 10 shillings being half of a pound. In the post-mortem examination, Amelia was described as being a particularly healthy woman for her age and there was no natural disease that could have caused or accelerated her death. Fractures of the ribs and breastbone indicated of a compression of the chest, most probably done by the knee of the assailant whilst the body was lying on the floor. Death was due to shock, followed by multiple injuries. The medical examination indicated that Amelia had never had a full sexual relationship with anybody during her life. Amelia Knowles lived a lonely life with few friends. It appeared the last person to see her alive was Alan Simmons, who was visiting Arundel on Saturday the 16th of September, while seeing relatives. He had formerly resided in Arundel and knew Amelia to speak to, and he spoke to her on the 16th while walking along Tarrant Street. He said she spoke very quietly, but appeared in good health. The licensee of the Newborough Arms Public House Tarrant Street states that on 11.35pm on Sunday the 17th of September 1944, he walked along Tarrant Street and on reaching Amelia's house he heard her talking very loudly to herself and using the expression, You damnable thing, I've had enough of it. When he returned a few minutes later she was still talking and shouting to herself. It was well known that Amelia was to talk loudly to herself and she annoyed other residents by her shouting, swearing, screaming and other nuisances which had usually went on throughout the night. A neighbour recognised Amelia's voice at about 1am on the 18th of September. She was awakened by Amelia screaming and her voice was louder than normal. It seemed that she was on her doorstep and she shouted several times, You can't come in here, you beast! As she was shouting, her voice receded as though she was walking back into her room. Then she heard her shouting, Murder! Help! Murder! 
followed by dead silence, and then a few distinct groans. About 25 minutes later, the neighbour heard what she thought was somebody tiptoeing down the street. Other neighbours heard similar sounds, but this was ignored as of the result of Amelia's previous behaviour. On the 19th of September, Scotland Yard detectives had taken over the case. Detective Sergeant Morris led the case. Police inquiries discovered that there had been an incident at Amelia's house a few days before, and Mrs Dorothy Dull had left her workplace at the Norfolk Hotel at Arundel at about 11.15pm and walked straight to her home at 24 Tarrant Street, and then took her dog out for a late walk. She thought it was sometime around the 13th of September. She walked past Amelia's house and found an airman listening at Amelia's front door. Dorothy Dowell flashed a torch at him and said, What are you doing here? The airman said, I owe this woman some money. I want to pay her as we're going away. Mrs Dowell advised the man to clear off. And at that moment, another man, who she thought was also an airman, who was on the pavement on the other side of the road, called out, Come on, Paddy, let's get going. The other man seemed to have just walked down the street as if he was looking for the other person called Paddy. The two men left together. Police made inquiries at various aerodromes and air force stations in the district and a check made of all the movements of airmen known as Paddy. The police came to question airmen stationed at Rundle Woods Park Farm, Arundel. They questioned airmen Grundy, airmen Ilsley and Brown, airmen Brown, known as Paddy who went out on the evening of the Sunday the 17th of August. They walked through the woods to Arundel and went on a pub crawl. The three of them had gone to a, for a couple of drinks at the Eagle Public House in Tarrant Street and other pubs in the town. The three had all consumed so much they were described as being worse for wear. They said they had about six pints and a double whiskey. When the landlord called time at the Eagle Public House at 10.30pm, Grundy and Ilsley made their way back to camp, but Brown was no longer with them. He had been with them, and then he was gone, without saying anything. They did not see him again that night. Brown had spoken to them before uh, he left about some raving old woman in Arundel who said he, he said owed him money, but they were not sure exactly what was said. Brown was questioned by the police about his movements on the 17th of September. He claimed that he told Grundy and Ilsley that he would catch them up after they left the Eagle at Public House, as he had to use the lavatory. He said that as a result, he walked back to camp alone, arriving there at 11pm. He claimed that he booked into the guardroom and then went to bed in his tent. As no, but no one could be found who saw Brown return to camp that night. So he was called to the police station for further questioning on the 27th of September 1944. Police had told him that they were not satisfied with his explanation and that he was carefully questioned. Brown at first insisting that he had reached the IRAF camp at 11pm but later admitted that he had told them a lie, that he walked around Arundel for a time, trying to pick up a girl after he left the pub. Following more questioning, Brown then admitted that he had committed the murder. He was cautioned and then made a full admission in a statement. The police must have thought it strange that Brown was sexually interested in a 69-year-old woman who was known for her eccentric behaviour. Even if he was a, a gerontophile, a man interested in much older women, Amelia Knowles was considered a recluse, mentally unbalanced and living in filthy conditions. Brown was to be committed at the Sussex Autumn Assize at Lewis on the 6th of December 1944. 
He was charged that on the night of the 17th and 18th of September 1944, he murdered Amelia Elizabeth Ann Knowles, aged 69, at 20 Tarrant Street, Arundel, Sussex. Brown was pleading not guilty. Brown admitted that he had knocked on the door of Amelia's house, and she opened the door a little way in response to his rap. He forced his way in and immediately attacked her with the intention of having sexual intercourse with the woman by force. He struck Amelia several times with his fists. She called out, Go on, you beast, and screamed, You murderer, you, as she fell on the couch in the struggle. So he pulled her onto the floor at the side of the couch and fought with her until she went quiet. After describing how he moved a small lamp from the mantelpiece to a table near the deceased, he pulled her clothes up, tore off her underclothing and had intercourse with her. He then admitted facts not previously known to the police when he stole some of uh, the tensionly notes from the bag that he found under her dress, leaving the remainder of the tensionly notes. Brown later spent some of the money in purchasing a torch and drinking in public houses in Arundel. He buried the remainder of the tensionly notes under some stones beside a gate on the way back to the RAF camp. Police later recovered ten of the notes folded under a pile of stones in Rondell Wood. Police also questioned Archibald Brown, confusingly the same name, Brown, who served in the same RAF unit as Paddy Brown. Archibald had been with Brown on the 16th of September when they had been to the cinema together and then visited the Eagle pub at Tarrant Road. Brown had gone missing, so Archibald had left the pub and when he discovered Brown at Amelia Knowles' door, he said, Is that you, Paddy? When he said yes, he gave some excuse and they walked back to camp. They did not discuss Paddy's actions at the door. This was the incident that was witnessed by Dorothy Dow, so the police learnt that two days before the murder of Paddy, um, Paddy Brown had been trying to get into Amelia's house after a drinking session. I should just mention here the police were late in... Um, talking to uh, Mrs. Dow because she went away on a week's holiday. That explains the, the time that it took them to uh, be aware of the story. Well, police found other witnesses, including two members of the, R the, uh, the RAF unit that Brown was in, who said that Paddy Brown was at the King's Arms at 1.30pm on the 18th of September, just hours after the murder, when he was freely buying people drinks. However, a conversation at the bar about the murder of Amelia Knowles was being discussed by a woman. At this point, Paddy Brown left some money for drinks, made excuses and left the pub. He later said that he was unhappy hearing about the murder. Paddy Brown had been visiting a Miss Winifred Horn almost daily for four months, calling at her home, which was quite near the RAF camp. In the week before Amelia's death, he did not visit her. Winifred Horn's grandmother had been Amelia's housekeeper many years previously, and Winifred knew Amelia quite well, but told the police that she'd never discussed her with Paddy Brown prior to her murder. Winifred also told the police that as far as she knew, Paddy Brown did not know Amelia, Amelia Knowles. Police also spoke to a young woman, Ivy Alice Curtis, who uh, Paddy Brown had met in Arundel. He'd spoken to her and her friend and taken them for a drink sometime during the middle of September. On the 18th of September, a few hours after the murder, after he left the pub, Ivy bumped into him again by chance, and Brown took her and his friend to the cinema in Arundel. They watched a movie called Purple Heart, an American propaganda film about bombing Japan. 
When discussing the price of seats, Paddy flashed a roll of ten shilling notes before paying the price of the seats at the cinema. Brad had also flashed his money when buying a torch and buying drinks in the public house. Paddy Brown's first statement to the police wasn't fully true, and he made a second statement at Arundel on Sussex on the uh, Arundel Sussex on the twenty seventh of September, nineteen forty four. He said that he lied in his first statement as he was nervous and thought he would get blamed for the murder. As he was walking around Arundel at midnight uh, on the night of the murder on the seventeenth and eighteenth of September. In his second statement, he went through the story of the night, which agreed in most part with that told by Grundy and Ilsley. Paddy Brown said that he did not go back to camp at 10.30 with his drinking partners, as he thought he would go and roam the streets and try to pick up a girl. While walking in Tarrant Street near Amelia's house, he heard her making a queer noise, so he rapped on the door. She opened it a little, and he said he forced his way in. Brown made no reference to the earlier attempt to get inside the house. Brown said he then struck her several times about the face as he struggled with her, and then she fell to the floor and went quiet. He said that it was then he admitted tearing off her clothes and having intercourse with her. He then found the pile of ten shilling notes and took some. Brown said that a fear then came over him after he killed her, and he left as quietly as he could. He couldn't sleep and was very frightened thinking about it. The next day he came into town and bought a torch. When the pubs opened, he went to the King's Arms, but left when he heard the murder being discussed. He thought he would go to the cinema to take his mind off the killing. He was glad that he happened to meet with Ivy and her friend, as he did not want to be alone. But watching the movie Purple Heart just made him feel worse, so he went out drinking again. He did not want to go back to camp, as he felt strange and thought others would notice his behaviour. He said he couldn't bear to hear people discuss the case, and later when questioned by police officers as to where he was that night, that he eventually felt he had to tell the truth. On the 19th of October, Brown was held on remand at Lewis Prison, charged with murder. While Brown was being held on remand, the medical officer kept him under observation and examined his records, which indicated that Brown was a simple-minded, gullible and easily led but he was not certified as mentally defective. His manner was considered dull and slow, but he also sometimes got rather overexcited. Other medical and psychiatric reports found Brown's intelligence to be below average. Brown was a strongly sexed individual. He started having sexual intercourse before he leaving school. He left school at 14. And then for a while before coming to England, he indulged in it every other night. He also admitted that very frequent practice of masturbation the report stated that there was no evidence what was called sexual perversion, which was odd when the rape on the night of the 17th of 18th of September is taken into consideration. Reports said that Brown was a fairly heavy drinker, and he stated that when he goes out on the beer once a week, he usually stops when he feels himself going queer. Brown said that he is sexually excited after alcohol. It plays on his mind, and he looks for women. On Sunday the 17th of September 1944, he claimed to have drank t- 10 pints of beer and whiskey. When the case went to court, the public gallery was full, as Brown pleaded not guilty before Mr Justice Christmas Humphreys. Brown claimed that he'd killed the shopkeeper accidentally when she flew at him, but there was zero evidence of this and the medical evidence showed that she had been badly beaten and raped. The prosecution was led by Cecil Havers QC, 
the defending barrister did not put Brown in the witness box and argued that Brown was insane when he committed the murder. The defence called the medical evidence that claimed that Brown showed signs of mental abnormality. However, it only took the jury 11 minutes to decide that Brown was guilty of murder and his execution at Wandsworth Prison followed on January the 30th, 1945. He was aged 26. Amelia Knowles, who was aged 69 when she was murdered, left a total of £518, 18 shillings and tuppence. She was the last of the line for her family. Well, so ends that short podcast. I'll thank anyone that listened to it. Thank Damselfly for providing the background music. Until next time, I'll say goodbye.